Podcastle 234, giant episode for November 13th, 2012, The Tricks of London by Elizabeth Bear, rated R primarily for violence. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and yes, we've got another giant episode for you. Once again, we're headed back to the New Amsterdam world created by Elizabeth Bear, in which in the late 1800s, the country we know as the United States of America is still very much just a colony of Britain, and sorcerers work side by side with police officers. Earlier this year, we played for you Wayne. This week's story, although featuring sorceress constable Abby Irene, isn't told from her point of view, and in fact takes place earlier than Wayne on the cobblestone streets of London. But wait, I mentioned cops and sorcerers, cobblestones, and, hey, also gaslights. So what are we waiting for? Podcastle is very proud to present The Tricks of London by Elizabeth Bear, originally published as a chapbook by Subterranean Press. Elizabeth Bear was born on the same day as Frodo and Bilbo Baggins, but in a different year. She lives in southern New England with a giant, ridiculous dog and a cat who is an internet celebrity. She's the winner of two Hugos and a Sturgeon Award, among others, and her most recent novels are Grail, The Sea Thy Mistress, and The Tempering of Men, the latter with Sarah Monette. Her latest novel is Range of Ghosts. She is involved in an ongoing collaborative web serial at www.shadowunit.org. Our reader today is John Trevilian who last read Forrest Carey Vaughan's A Hunter's Ode to His Bait. John's a British journalist, songwriter, and author of three science fiction novels, The Amen, The Amen Return, and Forever Amen. He's also doing The Adventures of Betty, which he says is a crazy comedy side project he's been pulled into. When not writing gritty punk fiction or international articles for Apple, he's completely transforming an ex-council house called Talliston into an interior design wonderland. You can check all that out at Trevilian.com. So grab your top hat and talisman and enjoy the story. The Tricks of London by Elizabeth Bear London, April 1879 One foot up and the other foot down That's the way to London town Nursery rhyme That's the third damned dead whore in seventeen days, Detective Inspector Rupert Bittner said, his educated tones incongruous to his choice of words. He slurped tea loudly from the chipped enamel lid of a vacuum flask. Before Detective Sergeant Sean Cuin could warn him of the narrow figure approaching through the shadowy line of uniformed constables behind, Bittner continued, And why we're out here in the rain because somebody's doing us a favour, can you explain to me? Hello, Crown Investigator, Kewan said, louder and sooner than necessary. He pushed past Bittner, the wings of his greatcoat brushing the senior investigator's legs, and dropped his hastily capped fountain pen into his own coat pocket. Cold rain dripped from the rim of Kewan's tipped umbrella and somehow worked past the brim of his bowler to trickle down his collar. He firmed his jaw to hide the flinch and extended his right hand. 
This is D.I. Rupert Bittner. I'm D.S. John Cohen. We're with CID. Introducing the D.I. first wouldn't mollify Bittner enough. Nothing would sweeten his mood after an encounter with one of the Crown's own, especially this one, but it might help blunt the edges. Unfortunately, reciting their ranks made it a little too plain that the newly established Criminal Investigations Division was modelled closely on the Crown investigators, and that Garrett ranked them. Kewin cleared his throat and finished, We're certainly relieved to see you. Someone leaning out one of the lamp-lit windows two or three stories above catcalled. Someone else hollered at him to shut up. Kewan didn't look up to mark from which rooms the noises issued. The detective crown investigator squinted at his hand as if unfamiliar with the appendage, but after a moment she transferred her blue velvet carpet bag to her left hand and laid her dainty glove across his palm before withdrawing it just as quickly. She didn't carry an umbrella, as if impervious to the rain, but Kewan noticed her dress was sturdy, warm wool rather than silk or organdy. Her back was straight in her corset and her expression never flickered, even when Bittner snorted and slurped more tea, deliberately discourteous. DCI Garrett, Detective Sergeant. Of course, Kewan knew it. She was the sole woman in her service, possessed of a notoriety that outstripped both her beauty and her expertise, neither of which was inconsiderable, as evidenced by the way Kewan's voice caught in his throat on a stammer when she arched the smooth eyebrow over one alert pale eye. He looked away quickly, but not quickly enough to miss noticing how the corner of her mouth curved now as it hadn't before. Apparently his discomfiture was more amusing than Bittner's rudeness. Perhaps that was something to build on. She turned, her walking dress mud-stained and swaying suddenly at the hem. He watched with some approval as she neatly sidestepped whatever filth some vagrant hurled from an unrepaired window above, she might seem serene, but her awareness was honed to a fine enough edge that the missile barely splashed her hem. I do hope you haven't dripped tea on my crime scene, she said tiredly to Bittner, then crouched in polished boots as if heedless that her navy skirt puddled on filthy stones. She set the carpet bag down beside her. It made more noise on the cobbles than her boots did, and Kewan wondered how she managed that. Maybe the same way she manages to move like a sylph, despite corset bones. Begging your pardon, ma'am, Bittner said, but there's no sign of thaumaturgical interference in these cases. You're rather wasted here. We do mundane crimes too, when they're unusual, she said. Her voice stayed mild and light. Kewan wondered how much practice went into that, and if it were more or less than had provided her perfect posture. Did he leave any footprints before the rain got to them? This is a lot of blood for there to be no traces. Bittner blew across the top of the tea, still steaming despite the patter of raindrops on its surface, and slurped ostentatiously before leaning over to Kewan and mouthing by his ear, You know, they say she slept her way into the service. When Kewan moved away, he didn't follow, nor did he move to prevent Kewan from stepping up to the Crown investigator's shoulder. She turned her head enough to let him know she'd seen him there. Cohen? Kewan said, 
There were footprints in the muck by the back wall, but no sign he scaled the building, and they stopped abruptly, near sheet brick, not by the gutter. In the rain, he shrugged, shoulders hunching against the cold. She turned away. Ah, get a look at the size. About average for a man, he said, big for a woman. She flexed her fingers, rubbing her palms together as if the gloves had not kept the chill out of her bones either. Then, as Kewan had expected she would, she drew a twisted blown glass rod from her sleeve, touched it to the draggled fur of her rain-caped collar, and said, Shield your eyes. He placed the flat of his hand between his eyes and the DCI, hearing a shuffle behind him as Bittner pointedly turned his back. There wasn't much of Bittner to turn. He must have been scraping his feet pretty hard to make as much noise as that. Fortunately, his coat collar and the hand beside his face let Kewan hide his smile as well as his eyes. As he had known it would, the first flare of stark blue light from the DCI's glassed rod outlined the bones of his hand, but then the brightness moderated, brighter than moonlight, but the same cold colour, casting the same relentless shadows. A rumble of voices rose from the uniformed officers and the bystanders leaning from their windows, dropping away, as did the intensity of the glow. When Kewan looked up, he saw the DCI silhouetted, runnels of water trickling from her hat, sparkling like sapphires as they caught and refracted the rays. She wedged the tip of the rod between stones and rose on the balls of her feet, one hand outstretched for a moment as if she expected to fall. But it stayed, shining through the falling droplets, illuminating the blood and rain-washed alley with uncomfortable clarity so that Kewan could see clearly what he had previously observed only by lantern light. Blood on the cobbles was the least of it. The body lay under a heavy oiled canvas tarp, though the weight of the rain was such that he could see the victim's outflung arm and doubled under leg as if nothing but a wet sheet draped her. The rain wouldn't be doing the trace evidence any good, though Kewan had fitted sieves across the gutters on the faint chance that they might catch something important before it washed away, if it hadn't all washed away before the patrol officer even found her. Kewan's fingers itched in their gloves when he watched the DCI brace her hands on her hips and slowly turn to take in the scene. He wondered what she was seeing, besides the puddles of blood clotted to seaweedy strings in the rain, beside the rain itself bucketing down to make every inch of the job harder. He wanted to see it too. The DCI interlaced her fingers before her mouth and nodded, exactly as if someone had asked her a question. She said, Detective Sergeant, lift the canvas, if you please. He could have protested that what lay under the cloth was no sight for a lady, but somehow he thought it probably wasn't the first time she'd heard that caution. Without turning to see if Bittner was paying attention, Kewan closed his umbrella, hooked it at his elbow, and bent down to expose the body. The DCI's steely conjured light gleamed sickly on the glossy exposed surface of the victim's liver, the swelling pearls of subcutaneous fat. Someone in a window squeaked, someone else moaned. Kewan heard the unmistakable sounds of vomiting. Somebody's canvassed them, the DCI said, without looking away from the grotesque display of flensed meat and spilled organs. Constables have been around, Bittner said, 
surprising Kewan with how close he'd slipped. They have names for what they're worth. A pair are still taking statements and we'll bring the likeliest back to the station house for further interrogation. You can't do anything unobserved in a place like this, but anyone who heard her scream and looked and is willing to talk to us only saw a slender figure in a cape and helmet vanishing into the dark. At least one said he looked like a peeler in that helmet, but I don't know of any policeman who'd come into a rookery like this alone. It could be worth your life. Now that something was actually happening, Bittner was either warming up to the DCI's presence or his curiosity was getting the better of him. Not only was he speech-making, but he'd crossed behind Kewen and came up on the opposite side from the DCI. Kewen let the slick, weighty canvas slip from his fingers. It folded up at his feet like a collapsed fan. Kewen said, What are you going to do now, ma'am? I'm going to make another examination for evidence, and before the body is released to the coroner, I'm going to try to reproduce the weapon, the DCI said, shaking a lank, pale strand out of her eyes. She bobbed her hair like an actress, so it swayed across the nape of her neck and stuck to her cheeks in waterlogged locks. Kewen found himself resisting the urge to push it off her face. Curse this rain, she said. I could believe it follows me. Your brolly, please, Detective Sergeant. Kewen laughed and opened the black oilcloth device in such a manner as to flick water away from both the crime scene and his fellow investigators. He used it to shelter the DCI while she rummaged in her carpet bag so he could sneak glimpses of what she fetched forth. Paraffin, he thought, watch glasses and forceps, a tiny camel hair brush that she grimaced at and returned to its loop on the inside of the bag. Right, she said. Detective Sergeant, please bring the umbrella over the victim. Some of her performance seemed no different from what Kewen and Bittner had done already. Some of it was alien to CID's procedures, but comprehensible, and some of it was utter arcana. Kewen itched to ask her the purpose of her muttering and the passes in the air she made over the body with a black-handled dagger, but he also thought breaking her concentration might be a rather perilous proposition, so instead he held the umbrella open over her hands and working area as best he could and tried not to breathe down her neck. For her part, the DCI seemed to ignore him. When she sat back on her heels, though, she caught his eye. Thank you, Detective Sergeant. She packed away her tools, dousing the glass rod with a pass of her hand. The brilliance of her light extinguished. Kewen noticed that the sky was greying around the roof lines. DCI Garrett stood as easily as if she were drawn erect on a cord and turned to Bittner. You're seen, Detective Inspector. Gentlemen, I've served my purpose here. As far as I'm concerned, you may release the victim to the coroner whenever you're finished with her. I should have a report for you within twelve hours. I assume I may rely on you for copies of the witness depositions. Bittner looked up from screwing the chipped lid back onto his vacuum flask. Absolutely, ma'am, he said. Arms folded over his chest, he held her gaze until she nodded thoughtfully, turned and walked away. Hewan came up beside him, his shoulder level with Bittner's ear, and tried not to let the umbrella drip on the D.I.'s head. Bittner turned slightly to sneer at Hewan from the corner of his mouth. God damn toady.
McEwen sucked his lower lip between his teeth, tasting the salt of nervous perspiration, the soot flecks washed out of the London smog. The DCI had already disappeared into the lightning morning. You think she's really His Highness's mistress? Bit old for it, isn't she? Got to be thirty, thirty-five if she's a day. Kewan glanced over his shoulder. I don't care if she's fifty. You think those grow on trees? I was just asking what you thought of the gossip. Bitten a spat out of the corner of his mouth. Why, you fancy your chances? Kewan snorted. The rain had slowed to a mist. He snapped the umbrella shut and shook it off. And what if I do? Women and Irish, Bittner said, taking over society if you ask me. It can't end well. It was closer to 14 hours than 12 before Kewan managed to present himself at the Greystone in Chancery to deliver transcripts of some dozen depositions to DCI Garrett, but he hadn't slept in the interim. He had managed a change of clothes and shoes and socks that did not squelch, and that was a boon, as was the approximate gallon of hot tea with sugar and lemon with which he'd washed his insides since the night before. The Enchancery's doorman might have been chosen to look the part. A tall man who hunched like a question mark, he wore his lank, dark hair combed across a freckled pate, a crisp black suit buttoned over a spare midriff. Good afternoon, he said, with a glance at the sky. Kewan, not tall and at a disadvantage due to the doorstep, craned his neck back. I'm expected, he said, fumbling inside his coat for a visiting card. Detective Sergeant Cohen for DCI Garrett. The doorman extended a gilt tray for the card. Kewan laid it gently across the concerned-seeming face of an embossed Narcissus and stepped through the door, as the doorman stood aside. "'Please wait in the receiving room,' the doorman said, indicating the appropriate doorway with a white-gloved flourish. Kewan stepped through and stood just inside the threshold with his elbows cupped in the palms of his hands. The receiving room was not large, but it was comfortably appointed, with militarily pleated drapes that reminded Kewan of coffin velvet. He could sit on one of the needlepoint chairs but that seemed like an unnecessary risk. He was still standing when Garrett appeared in the doorway. Kewan had expected the doorman again, somehow come to usher him deeper into the bowels of the former mansion. The sorcerer herself, clad now in a plain blue dress with sleeves that buttoned to the elbow, came as something of a shock. D-DCI, he stammered, heat spilling across his face. I-I... You didn't need to deliver these personally she said, extending a pale hand. A messenger would have sufficed. He slipped the documents in their oilcloth case out from under his arm and handed them to her. I chose to assume the responsibility. I wanted... Her eyebrows rose. Her thumbs slipped under the flap of the case, but hesitating before she lifted it. Though she said nothing, he read her regard as sceptical. I wanted to speak to you away from the D.I., he finished, limping. Groping after anything else to say, he added, Did you have any luck with the knife? She'd been freezing over, a chill spidering through her manner like frost elongating toward the centre of a pool, whether despite or because of its awkwardness, his question broke that ice. She smiled faintly, the appling of her cheeks making more evident the bruised shadows under her eyes. As a matter of fact, she said, 
I've had some exceptional success. Come along. She turned, black boots that vanished under the hem of her skirts clicking on marble until she mounted the heavy-figured runner in the hall. She moved like a whippet, so Kewan hurried to match her, almost breaking into a trot before he drew up alongside. His heart thumped hollowly, but it wasn't the woman or the exertion. It was the place. He was here, in the enchancery itself, on official business. He kept his eyes front and his expression professional, but there was a twelve-year-old inside him who hung on every sound, every image, every scent. The long hall smelled of tobacco smoke, nitre and saffron. The walls on both sides were hung with portraits of men in plain frames, each dark bevelled rectangle chased with a narrow thread of silver. The oldest were in oils or tempera, the newer ones silver process on tin. Each one bore a plaque beneath it with the name of one of the crown's own and the circumstances of his death in the line of duty. By the time Garrett and Kewan came to the far end of the hall, there were no more portraits, but the smell of saffron lay musty and heavy on the air, leading Kewan to speculate that dinner was likely to be curry. The stair Garrett led him to was wide and plain, not a grand stair, but not a servant's runway either. He thought they would climb, but she turned downwards, still wordlessly, and so they descended together. Kewan's palms sweated badly enough that he wished he could ball his fists in his pockets. The emotion filling him up was a peculiar one, a ribbon snarl of melancholy and longing he was more accustomed to associate with unobtainable women than with government offices. He was here, finally, inside these grey walls and walking these worn floors, but he was not here as a crown investigator, or even as a hopeful supplicant. At the bottom of the stair, Garrett unlocked a second door and swung it wide. Kewan expected the dankness of a London basement, but they entered into a bright, cool space, floored in granite, the low beams overhead knobbly with glass spheres aglow with incandescent light. The perimeter of the basement was divided into bays, each one open toward the centre and containing a table, metal shelves covered in equipment, and paraphernalia, half of which Kewan could not identify. We don't research or experiment here, she said. That's carried out at London Bridge, just in case anything blows up. But there are facilities for forensic work. Last bay on the left, please. He went on ahead while she was locking the door behind and paused by the opening she had indicated. A light still burned over the long slab table, a length of white toweling spread beneath it. Something black and slender lay diagonally across the cloth, dull enough even under intense light that Kewan could not make out its detail. Garrett cleared her throat at his shoulder and he jumped. While he was still gathering himself, she said, Cohen is really Kewan, isn't it, Detective Sergeant? Sean Kewan? Do I miss my guess? The slow banging of his heart accelerated with panic. DCI? She shook her head. You're Irish, aren't you? He could lie, of course, but changing a name wasn't a crime. Lying about the reasons to a Crown investigator, however. I'm Irish, he said, but I'm good at my job. She smiled. Never fear, Cohen. I'd be the last to throw you to the wolves. 
I know your partner dismisses it, but do you think your killer is a bobby? He shrugged. I haven't ruled it out, but that's a lot of ground for a policeman to cover, unless he's off-duty nights. And why would you slip on a cape to cover your uniform, but leave your helmet on? You could plan to come back and mingle with the crowd of police at the scene, Garrett offered. Here's your knife, or the shape of it anyway. She reached out and lifted the object, turning to offer it across her hand. Kewan accepted the model, finding it lighter and warmer than he'd expected. He'd thought it would feel like glass, heavy and chill, but it barely weighed in his hand. When he held it close enough, angled to the light, he could pick out the features of the blade. Dip it in whitewash, she said. It'll give it a little more texture, but for now you should be able to see it's a frontiersman, Kewan said. A hunting knife jagged along the back, sharply pointed and sporting a heavy bevelled edge. We don't see a lot of these in London. She nodded. I thought it was significant. There's more. Look at the hilt. He brought his eye down to the same level as the hilt and looked along it, consciously adjusting his focus to sweep the length. There are scratches on the hilt. That's pretty damned weird, DCI. They look like fingernail scratches, she said, but those would have to be peculiarly long fingernails. Whatever passed between them when their eyes met, it was Kewan who looked aside. It was easier to talk with his shoulder to her. Spit it out, Kewan. How did you get to be a sorcerer? She lifted her chin, framing a savage response, but then something in his face must have softened her fury because the corner of her eyes twitched and she said, I attended university. Kewan bit his lip, knowing she noticed. And the admission requirements? A basic liberal education, she said. There's an examination, of course, and a practical. The examinations are more stringent at Oxford than on the continent, with three or four exceptions. The Sabon, he said. The flat line of her mouth curved upward. It must have been the note of pure longing in his voice. She said, But if you want to join the Crown's own, she touched her dress over her breastbone. You need the red sigils. Sorcerers received the mark of their profession upon graduation, mostly tattooed over the breastbone in black ink. The red sigils were from Oxford, Paris, Wittenberg, Rome or Kiev, the great universities of the profession. No point in studying anywhere else then. You've a spark? He nodded. She lifted the model knife from his grip and turned back toward the work table. With her free hand, she swept up the length of toweling. Show me. He spread his fingers as if they ached. I haven't anything to work with. Garrett laid the objects in her hands on a steel shelf. When she turned back, she held a shallow brown and cream glazed bowl in her palm. She laid it on the table before Kewan and cupped her hands over it. She leaned over it, looked down and breathed. Where do you think you are? Between her hands, the fine white grit that filled the bottom of the bowl shifted slightly. That's sand and glass. Can you shift them? Kewan swallowed. A little. I'm not strong. Talent isn't half of it. As long as you've enough to go on with, brains and determination mean more. She hesitated. You know, neither Oxford nor the Crown's own would take you under an assumed name. There are oaths, and they have means by which to tell. Can you face that? He swallowed. I don't know. 
She stepped back and Kewan stepped forward. He cupped his hand around the bowl. Do you have a glass rod or a piece of quartz? Smiling, she let the lens of rock crystal slide to the table from where she'd palmed it. Kewan touched it with his fingertips, slid it around until it centred between his body and the bowl. He closed his eyes. The blood in the lids filtered the bright light pink, but he could still see it. Against that glow he pictured the bowl of white grit, the tabletop, the crystal, his hands. He imagined the grit sifting itself, sand and powdered glass, indistinguishable to the eye. He tried to feel the flush of energy moving through him, the tingle of his fingertips, but all he felt was an ache at his temples, the throbbing in his throat. Enough, Garrett said. Kewan opened his eyes in time to see her draw a finger across the dust-dulled surface of the lens, leaving a shiny swathe behind. Not strong, he said again, apologetically, embarrassed, feeling the heat in his cheeks. She touched one of them with that self-same finger, so he imagined he felt the sand grit against his flesh. Irish, she said, and shook her head. Huh, and then she winked. Well, if a girl can do it. Bittner thought the American knife meant the killer was a colonial. Kewan couldn't argue with the possibility, but he thought Bittner's conviction betrayed a certain unsettling air of relief. Not one of ours, something other, something else. It's comforting to alienate the monsters. So Bittner built his fairy tales and sent the bobbies about asking after rough-hewn colonials while Kewan imagined him picturing the killer in fringed buckskin and a wolverine cap and had to cover his mouth with his hand. It was wasted time, but Kewan knew better than to argue. So he nodded and agreed and conducted his own investigation in the interstices of Bittner's. It meant he ate out of cook shops still draped in black bunting to mark the period of formal mourning for the prince consort, and it meant he slept in snatches propped against walls, but neither thing mattered. There was no one waiting at home. He asked Bittner's questions, insubordination wasn't useful, but Kewan also made sure to ask his own less leading ones first. Not that it garnered him much. The murderer might as well have vanished into the yellow fog. Might as well have been the yellow fog for all the traces he left. They waited only three days for the next victim. Kewan was catching a nap when the bell rang, dog-legged on the burgundy divan which jammed one corner of his office. He started awake in darkness, slatted with what dim light fell through the blinds from the hall, and pushed himself to his feet before he really knew what was transpiring. Shoving a hand through well-greased hair to rake it into some semblance of order, he opened the office door and leaned through it, one hand on the knob, the other braced heavily against the frame. What's all this? Bittner was shrugging into his coat. He might be too attached to pet theories, but Kewan couldn't fault his work ethic. And when he looked up and caught Kewan's eyes, Kewan didn't ask any more stupid questions. He fumbled his coat off the back of his chair and threw it around his shoulders. The boots were under his desk. He jammed his feet into them one at a time, hopping as he caught up to Bittner. What have we got? A double. Bittner grunted as Kewan stomped his heel into his second boot. He could button them in the carriage. Come on, it's Jacob's Island. We're going where the whores and Irish reside. Bloody hell, Kewan said tiredly. Bloody 
hell. Jacob's Island was an island no longer, the man-made folly ditch that delineated it having been filled in decades before, but it remained one of the worst rookeries in Bermondsey, the reek of tanneries doing nothing to cover the charnel stench. Shaggy tenements leaned shoulder to shoulder, hunched over in eradicably filthy alleyways, littered with crusted oyster shells and bloated animal corpses. It was down one of these, off Jacob Street, that a uniformed officer led Kewen and Bittner. Bittner held a handkerchief pressed to his face. It was impossible to tell by the sickly light of dawn if his colour was as queer as Kewen's stomach, but Kewen wouldn't doubt it. Grey morning caught a clotted sheen off the cobblestones and the mud between them. Kewen stepped carefully. They had to pass through a warped and rotten gate to reach the bodies, which lay in an enclosed courtyard within or between tenements. There the squalid stones lay concealed under a fading red wash, and two women tumbled in each other's arms. Or rather, Kewen realised, as he drew up at the edge of the puddle blood, one had pulled the other into her arms before she died. The younger lay spread-eagled, the cavity of her abdomen gaping through a rent bodice, grey and yellow organs losing lustre before his eyes. Under her crouched an older woman, one leg bent, her slashed throat soaking her dress and her arms hacked about the forearms. "'Sweet Christ,' Bindner said, and turned from the drone of flies. He made a show of examining the gate the rotting iron fence some twelve feet high that separated the yard from the alley and the stones of the tenement to either side. There's no sign this was climbed, he said. You couldn't climb something this rusty without making noise and leaving signs. Was it locked? The gate and the door from the tenement, too, and the hallways are full of Irishmen. Bittner's jaw worked. The girl was no better than she had to be. I think we'll find she got money from most of them. None of them saw anything, of course, unless somebody got inside all over blood, stepping over sleeping men without waking one of them. He didn't leave that way. Maybe the blackguard sprouted wings and flew. Kewen turned back to the dead. He swallowed bile and leaned over the blood, careful not to trespass its margins. She fought. Kewen said, and realised only when he heard his own voice that he'd spoken aloud. D.I., come look at this. Bittner gagged, but didn't retch. He squared himself beside Kewen and squinted through the gloaming, arms folded over his chest. He attacked the young one first. She's just a girl, Kewen said. Agony and death didn't help the process of determining her age, but by her sloped nose and the plumpness of her cheeks and jaw, he made her out to be no more than sixteen. The older might be thirty, though she looked half a crone. Women aged fast in poverty. Her mother or sister or friend came to her defences. He glanced from side to side, brow itching as it furrowed. There was less blood behind the body, a slope had pulled it chiefly in one direction, and so he circled to approach from that direction. He crouched there and lifted one of the older woman's arms. Her garments were worn, stained. There was too much blood and muck on them to tell if they had been clean before she fell. These are wounds from defence, he said. There's blood under her nails. Bittner handed him a penknife and an envelope. Maybe some of it is his, and he might have cuts. She must have fought like a tigress. Having scraped her fingernails into the envelope, 
Kewan laid her hand gently down from where he had lifted it. He patted the dead woman's matted hair. I hope you got your claws in him, love, he said. Good for you. When Kewan arrived at the Enchancery, it was half eight, hammered light making the old city glint like copper and pewter under a ragged sky. He didn't expect DCI Garrett to see him at all. He certainly didn't expect her to meet him in her dressing gown and slippers, eyes red-rimmed and strands of bobbed hair twisting out like twigs around a pallid face. The doorman sniffed with pained disgust as he left them alone together, but Kewan was honestly more concerned with the greyness of her cheeks and the smell of bourbon on her breath. Late night? She rolled her eyes at him exactly the way Bittner might have, so he choked back a bark of laughter. She caught it too, to judge from her hollow back smile. Do you have a sweetheart, Cohen? He shook his head. You're better off without one. What have you brought me? You're holding that parcel like you had a dead rat by the tail, so I imagine chocolates are too much to hope for. Kewan chuckled under his breath and held out the brown paper package, which he had indeed been dangling from a fingertip thrust through the twine. Nothing nice, I'm afraid. She lifted the box with both hands, cradling it six inches before her bosom. It never is. There's been another killing. Two, in the small hours of the morning. He was hovering, he realised, giving her a covert stare like a wishful hound. He should explain himself, excuse himself, and go. Those are scrapings from under the fingernails of one of the victims. Fingernails, she said. Kewan nodded. She fought. That turned the DCI's empty smile real. Good for her. Good job, Cohen. Maybe we'll make a Crown Investigator review yet. It shocked him to hear her state his secret hope so baldly, as if there were no embarrassment in it. He stood as if poleaxed. She moved away, as if to retreat deeper into the bowels of the Enchancery, and Kewan settled his bag more firmly on his shoulder, grateful to be tacitly dismissed. Until she stopped in the doorway, turned back over her shoulder and said, What are you waiting for? The stairs down were the same stairs, and the laboratory below them was the same laboratory. Kewan followed as Garrett swept precipitously across the stone floor, the skirts of her dressing gown flaring about ankles that flashed distractingly white in the brilliant lighting. Another of the crown's own was hard at work in one of the bays, bent grumbling over some process involving retorts and alembics. He glanced up as they came parallel to his table, but didn't return Garrett's civil nod. Kewan felt the sorcerer's stare boring between his shoulder blades as they passed. "'You have time to dress, DCI,' he murmured, as she led him into the same end bay as before. She set the parcel down on the table and flashed him a wink that made his heart skip a beat, in despite, or perhaps because, of her disability. "'They don't bother.' The jerk of her chin indicated the anonymous crown investigator sharing the basement and all the enchancery beyond. I had to fight like a cat to be allowed rooms here. It's most unsuitable, you know. Her grin was infectious. Kewan found himself sharing it as she continued. You can be certain I mean to use them exactly as the men do. Now, tell me, Detective Sergeant, is there anything about this fourth murder scene that you noticed in particular, other than the presence of more than one body? The gate, he said promptly and blushed. He looked down but continued. 
The yard was gated with a 14-foot fence of raw iron. And the previous murder was in a tenement yard as well, she said and frowned. Where did you say these murders took place? I didn't. Sorry, the instinct is to withhold information from potential interview subjects. From a sideways glance as she lifted a pair of bandage scissors with which to cut the twine, she understood that instinct very well. Kewan finished. But it was Jacob's Island. She rubbed the corners of her red-rimmed eyes with the hand that didn't hold the scissors. I suspected you were going to say that. Remember the footprints at the first scene? The ones that ended in a wall. The ones we thought the rain must have washed away. It didn't. Having laid the scissors aside, she drew the snipped twine free and coiled it about her fingers. That done, she began folding open, crackling paper. He didn't scale that wall, Kewan protested. Not without sorcery. She folded the paper too and set it aside with parsimony that struck him as quite out of character for an aristocrat. He didn't scale the wall, she agreed. He jumped. Of course, Kewan knew what she meant. It was London legendary, the stuff of penny dreadfuls and bedtime tales, murders and assaults in Whitechapel, in Southwark, in Jacob's Island. Even an Irish boy had heard about the bogeyman. But that was forty years ago. She opened his box and lifted his little morbid stack of lidded watch glasses free, dealing them out upon the table in a line. As mildly as if inquiring if he preferred milk or lemon in his tea, she asked, What's forty years to spring-heeled Jack? More or less, I mean. We never knew why he stopped before, so it's no mystery if he started up again. He didn't kill. Garrett licked her lips. Forty years is long enough to learn to use a knife. Whatever other errands she ran after retiring up the stairs, Garrett was still the first Crown investigator to appear again in the hall, though the Enchancery's housekeeper assured Kewan that soon there would be more. Kewan's experience had prepared him for many things, but the sight of DCI Garrett in navy trousers and a coat like a man was not one of them. She had swept her bobbed hair up under a bowler and buttoned all four buttons on the jacket rather than leaving the bottom three open to flash her waistcoat, and still he found he couldn't look at her directly. His discomfort seemed to amuse her, however, especially when he blushed and turned his head when she bent to lift her carpet bag. Can't fight devils in a dress, she said, facing him. Kewan extended a hand, ready to take her bag, but she shook her head and shouldered it. He stepped back, still tasting the bitter coffee the housekeeper had poured him. In the street before the enchancery, he heard the rattle of many hooves and the whir of steel-shod carriage wheels on the stones. He said, So, how do you catch a devil? We didn't catch him last time. We only ran him off, if we had anything to do with it. And now he's back. Stairs creaked. Garrett's and Kewan's head pivoting as one. Two more sorcerers passed their descent at the first landing, one a tall man with grizzled hair and a moustache that draped his upper lip in luxuriance, the other shorter, stouter and sprightly of step, despite curls shot through with silver and a powder-blue coat gone shiny at the elbows. DCI Rice, Garrett said, nodding to the taller before turning her attention to the man in the worn suit. Commander? Kewan caught himself correcting his posture. 
So this was Sir Nigel Lane, commander of the Crown's own. As he descended, Kewan could see that he was not a big man, neither tall nor broad across the shoulder, but he wore the unmistakable cloak of authority, which neither his genteel manner nor the careless manner of his dress could diminish. He extended his hand, and Kewan hurried to accept it, stammering as he tried to remember if the proper form of address was Commander Lane or Sir Nigel. "'Commander,' the commander offered, with a disarming smile. The Crown's own reserved titles for social occasions. It confuses the issue otherwise. Don't you agree, Lady Abigail Irene? Of course, Commander, she said with an amused smile. DCI Rice, Commander Lane, this is Detective Sergeant Cohen. He's been cooperating on the prostitute murders. Rice winced when Garrett said prostitute, and Kewan would have had to be a blind man to miss his disapproval of her mode of dress and the casual banter Commander Lane offered her. Kewan squelched hard any unworthy speculation on how exactly it was that DCI Garrett had come to be the only female among the Crown's own. Perhaps Sir Nigel had been a friend of her family. There was only so much peerage after all. Excellent work, Detective Sergeant, Lane said. He had a cool, dry handshake, papery but still strong. I'll be sure to put in a good word with your superiors. Ouch, Kewan thought. But out loud, he said, Thank you. May I ask what our next course of action is? Three more sorcerers had appeared at the landing while he was shaking the commander's hand. The men filed down, arranging themselves against the hallway wall. By the tilt of his head, Commander Lane appeared to note their presence, but he didn't turn. To start? DCI Garrett has turned the tissues you recovered over to a team of technical sorcerers who will be providing us with locator amulets. Once that's done, we put a lot of men on the street. Garrett supplied, station the Crown's own near every neighbourhood affected, then or now, and then we wait for him to emerge. A mustard-coloured blend of coal smoke and London fog, thick as gravy, licked the windows of the carriage and trailed across the street in tendrils that seemed firm enough to touch. Kewan balanced awkwardly on the bench seat beside Garrett, trying not to stare as the drape of her trousers resealed the outline of her knees. He hunched over the amulet cupped in his palms, watching a needle of light flicker in the jewel at its centre. A real cat's eye would have maintained its orientation, but this one spun lazily as the needle of a demagnetised compass. When Kewan sighed, his breath blew across it, and, impossible as that was, seemed to set it spinning the harder. He won't appear until sunset, Garrett said. She had bent her head and was picking something from her coat sleeve, the wiry russet hairs of a dog, if he didn't miss his guess. Terrier? She smiled obliquely and flicked the fur out the window. You have a good eye. I like dogs. You keep it in your rooms? You may as well take some rest. She looked away and drew her legs up onto the cushion, wedging herself into the corner opposite. When Kewan looked up in surprise, she reached for the lap robe that hung beside the door. We have to be out amidst the city, it's true, but nothing will happen until nightfall, and one of the most vital skills of a Crown investigator is sleeping in carriages, Detective Sergeant. By all means, take the bench opposite. 
Thank you, he said, I think. He held on to the amulet while he swung across the cabin of the carriage. There was another robe. He reached for it and snuggled himself into the corner opposite. Garrett seemed to drop off as soon as she shut her eyes, her breath levelling out and her head rolling softly on the long neck. Kewan did not find sleep so easy. With broad daylight outside the windows and the close, unchaperoned proximity of a woman, but he let his head slide to the side anyway, cupping the amulet where he could watch it without turning. If it flickered with anything resembling purpose, he would see. He didn't expect to doze, but the late night and his gritty eyes' lack of sleep quickly won the day. When he awoke, it was to Garrett's touch on the back of his wrist. Sunset, she said. He could see the slanted orange light, still fog-muffled, for himself. He sat up, rubbing his eyes as much to obscure the sleep-must visage across the dim carriage as to clear the sleep away. You told me so. He'd been dreaming, pentagrams and frankincense, and it almost seemed the cloying scent of resin still hung all around them. The amulet must have slipped from his hand in his sleep, because Garrett held it now, balanced lightly on her palm. Any movement yet? She bent over it briefly and shook her head. It's still slow spins. As if her frown had conjured it, a whip-snake tendril of dream memory skimmed his awareness. Conjured, Kewan shuddered. Do devils just summon themselves? A slow blink as Garrett raised her gaze from the amulet cupped in her palms. A conjured spirit, she said, possible, though why you'd go to all that trouble just to murder a soiled dove or three. She shook her head. Well, fiddlesticks, he said. I was hoping against hope that I might have developed a faculty for clairvoyant dreams. Maybe we should bring in a spiritualist, she offered. When he winced, she patted his knee and continued, whether or not your dreams are prophetic, it doesn't mean you're incorrect, or... She paused, and for a moment he imagined he saw her counting on her fingers. What does now have in common with forty years ago? Well, I wasn't here then, Kewan said to see her smile. Same Iron Queen, he said, opening his hands helplessly, though only just barely a queen on that end. Long may she reign. He must not have scrubbed his voice sufficiently, because Garrett gave him a soft, ironical smile. I'm sure Alexandria Victoria will be comforted by your approval. Kewan touched the brim of his hat and wondered if he dared to kiss her. She was too old for him, and an adventuress, and rumoured have it that her lips were not innocent of men's kisses, and that one of those men was the son of the woman he had just obliquely maligned. He looked away. It's been forty years since spring Jack was last in London. Forty years exactly? Near enough, she answered. When last he appeared, he terrorised women from 37 to 1840, and was never captured. He was described as thin, tall, clad in white oilcloth and a flowing cape, with a pointed beard and pop eyes. His claws were made of iron and were freezing cold to the touch. He scampered over rooftops and leaped hedgerows and walls with mighty bounds. This time he seems more violent, however. Then he only murdered a few of his victims. The rest were groped, clawed, or interfered with. But again, in the intervening years, he's learned to use a knife, and that seems to increase his lethality. When she spoke, she was as cold-blooded as any copper. 
Hewan felt as if he should withdraw, find it unseemly. Bittner no doubt would. Instead, it made him easier with her. When she spoke so, she was just a colleague. She continued, he vanished after something very like this. The crown's own blanketed the city, interrupting his every attack. Eventually, he must have given up his purpose, whatever it might have been, thwarted. So what gave him the idea for the knife, if he only used claws before? She shook her head. It would be natural to blame this on a copycat. But you don't think it is. He leaned forward on his seat to push aside the curtains and peer out the window. Nothing lay beyond except the city, the press of its streets and the gloaming. A woman in a ragged dress caught his eye and swung her hips. Kewan bit his lip on a sigh. Even if she knew someone was hunting her, there wasn't much she could do if she was going to earn a few pennies for her liquor and her bed. Here at the edge of Whitechapel, theirs was the only carriage in sight. Not even handsome cabs found commerce here. I tested the scrapings, Garrett said. They weren't from anything human. Kewan let the curtain fall. Did you say interfered with? Raped, she amended dryly. No sign of that this time. He's taking the direct route. It fell like a stone into still water between them. Kewan struck dumb while his mind ticked over the implications, Garrett staring back. DS, she said finally. I do believe you're right. Do you wish me to inform your supervisor as well as my own? D.I. Bittner? Yes, if you know what's going on. She reached up to rap on the carriage roof. I think we can manage that. She handed Kewan the amulet before leaning out the window to confer briefly with the coachman. By the time she sat down again, Kewan had finished lighting the lantern that would allow them to see each other, though the last light faded from the sky. I think he's using the, the life force, the generative force of his female victims to stay manifested in London. I think he needs that anchor or he falls back into whatever hell he came from. And the Queen's reign is his gateway. Then she was young, new to the throne. Now she's recently widowed, a woman in transition. He connects himself to the Queen's life-giving energy the same way you sorted the sand from the glass. Because all women share a symbolic continuity, Kewan said, just like all bits of quartz. Garrett nodded, just like all men. Kewan glanced down at the amulet, expecting only more lazy spinning, and had to look back twice to confirm what his eyes registered. The needle of light pointed west, shivering like a bird dog on point. He held it up. Garrett, after only a wide-eyed glance, lunged for the window to call out to the coachman again. The coach lurched heavily through packed streets, jostled and slewing, so Kewan was obliged to wedge himself in the same corner he'd stepped in and cling for dear life to the vertical rail beside the door. St Giles, Garrett said, as the needle's course plunged them along the roads that still describe the path of London's ancient walls. We couldn't have guessed much more wrong than Whitechapel. Kewan gritted his teeth, grateful for missed meals, and held on until the carriage shook to a halt a mere three miles, but nearly half an hour later. We're not the first, Garrett said, pushing the curtain aside. She swung the door open as she stood and kicked the stairs down. 
one hand extended to whoever waited below, the other burdened with her carpet bag. She descended without regard for the railing. Kewan followed at slightly less breakneck speeds, though still in haste. As he fell into step beside her, she spoke without looking at him. I've made up my mind to write you a letter of recommendation to Oxford. He would have stammered thanks, but she silenced him with a wave. Full dark had fallen while they raced the breadth of the city proper, and the coal, oil, stinking yellow fog rolled in. Despite street lamps and carriage lanterns, everything had acquired an air of indistinctness or unreality. However, the transfer of information had taken place. Five carriages clustered at the base of the pillar, marking the intersection called the Seven Dials. Fifteen or twenty men milled among them, the bright edge of human chatter dulled by the fog. Along the perimeter of the lamplight loomed the vague edge silhouettes of helmeted and uniformed officers, some clutching their truncheons like children clutch poppets. As Kewan found his footing, D.I. Bittner detached himself from the crowd and stumped over. That didn't surprise Kewan, but he was a little taken aback to realise that the overcoated shape striding along in Bittner's wake was Detective Superintendent Mattingly, second-in-command of CID. He hastened forward, intending to smooth over the introductions, but Garrett was already warmly greeting Mattingly. The detective superintendent seemed less enthusiastic, but he wasn't giving her the brush off, a friendliness which Kewan perceived to be the source of Bittner's frown. "'What have we got?' Garrett asked as Kewan drew up. Across the square, fog swirled around the pumping legs of Commander Lane, his silhouette unmistakable as he hurried to join them. Mattingly cast a searing look over his shoulder at the rookery as Lane inserted himself into the circle. The Met of the Rookery surrounded, he said, nodding to the truncheon-wielding crew. They're not letting anyone pass. With all due respect, sir, Kewan said, he's already in there, and if they're talking about a jumping devil, well, a lot of peelers aren't going to slow him down a bit. Mattingly harumphed through his moustache. St Giles is a warren, DS. We don't have enough men to maintain a perimeter if we go in after him. We can go in. Lane offered, gesturing to another carriage now drawing up, the arms of the crown's own emblazoned in gold on the black, glossy door. Kewan winced, but he hadn't the rank to say what needed saying. Bittner, too, was swelling full of unpronounced arguments. Fortunately, Mattingly interceded. Do you want to imagine the carnage we'd get if we sent a dozen stiff-limbed elderly sorcerers on a room-by-room -room search of that... Lane bridled, but Mattingly rolled right over him. Even a wizard can be bashed over the head, sir, and they would be. No, thank you, Commander Lane. It would be a far superior use of your resources if your men would consent to be stationed among the bobbies. A stasis wanding is our best chance to capture this sprite. I think I know what he's after, Garrett said. Every set of eyes swivelled and she coloured. It's indelicate. Lane tilted his head. We are all scientists here, DCI. A feminine principle, she said. Before he raped for it, and when we kept him from his prey for long enough, he was forced to return from whatever hell he came from. Now he simply eviscerates. D.S. Cohen gave me the idea. Did he now? Bittner interrupted, raking Kewan with a peculiar look. Mattingly said, 
That gives us a potential strategy for starving him out, but it doesn't answer the question of which terrier can drag this particular badger from his set. Kiun felt Garrett drawing herself up. Send us, she said, pointing from Bittner to Kiun. The three of us, and a couple of bobbies if there's one or two who will volunteer. These two gentlemen have revolvers, I imagine, and I'll have my wand. They can protect me quite effectively, and it won't be a house-to-house search. We have the amulets, thanks to D.S. Cohen, and I am hardly elderly and stiff-limbed. I'm not sending a woman into danger, Mattingly said, with a glance for support at Lane. Garrett took a step forward. Her pointing finger made an arc, taking in the bobbies and their lanterns, the hellish silhouettes, their lights cast on the fog. There's a woman in there now, Detective Superintendent, who, if she has not already been molested and horribly killed, is already in grave peril. You're not sending me into danger, sir. I'm going to get my sister out. The sweep of her neck, the lift of her chin, were magnificent. Kewan held his breath, thinking of Mattingly's fond disdain, the dismissive comments of investigators. From across the circle, Bittner caught his gaze, one eyebrow rising. Lane spread his hands. I know better than to come between DCI Garrett and anything she might have set her will on. Mattingly shook his head. Bittner? Cohen? We'll do it, Kewan said, as Bittner's mouth was opening. It might be insubordination, but whatever he'd been about to say, once the words were out of Kewan's mouth, Bittner rocked back on his heels and folded his arms. Superior officer or not, he'd back his partner up. We'll do it, Bittner agreed, more slowly. He turned to Garrett. The plan is to flush him out onto the Crown's own. Do you think he'll run when confronted? She looked as if she'd like to bite her lip, but was too much of a lady. Instead, a shiver spread through her delicate cheek. He did before. The alleys stank of faeces and rotting trash. No light filtered in from outside. The gaps between buildings had long been bridged with shoddy construction that sifted filth on their hats. And Kewan tried not to think too hard on what the beams of their lanterns illuminated through the crawling smog. Any heap of rags might be a filthy vagrant, a rotting corpse, or just a stinking heap of garbage. Hewan would be as glad to get through the night without having to determine which was which. Few folk were abroad. Kewan would wager that word had spread of the peelers surrounding St Giles and everybody who had shelter was taking it. So they moved like ghosts through the fog, unopposed but not unremarked. Kewan felt as if he could sense the hostile gazes blistering his skin from every angle. If he could not see the people... He could hear them, the scrape of iron on stone within the ratty dwelling places, the screams of more miserable babies than could be counted. Garrett had the amulet, her footsteps clicking at his heels. She called directions at each intersection. Behind her, Kewan heard the scrape of Bittner's boot, his ragged breathing. Two bobbies, Burns and Jameson, brought up the rear, big doughty men clutching their truncheons. Kewan's palm sweated into the grip of his revolver. He was obliged to pause at each corner, flatten himself against whatever passed for a wall, some no more than flimsy barriers of planking and bits of crate, the interstices wedged with rags, and peer ahead into the gloom, alert to ambush. 
Nevertheless, the knowledge that somewhere ahead a woman could be in peril of her life kept him moving faster than caution would dictate. We must be getting close, Garrett said. The amulet is brightening. As if her words had been permission, the ambient sound of too many people living pent too closely in tiny rooms and corridors was rent by a woman's cry. With a glance over his shoulder, Kewan broke into a run. It could be a trap, of course, and it could be that he was charging headlong to the devil, but he told himself he wouldn't be himself if he could listen to a shriek like that and take no action. The pounding footsteps of the others echoed around him, telling him he was not alone. Garrett kept up quite handily, the silver tip of her wand flashing in the lantern light as she drew up alongside, and Bittner, long-legged and slight, swung wide to charge past them, drawing ahead. Kewan watched the jiggling beam of his lantern and drove harder, hopping rubbish piles and sliding in drifts of refuse. One of the bobbies blew his whistle, sharp and shrill, a sound that set Kewan's teeth to vibrating in his skull. They broke out into a courtyard ringed in squalid shanties, loomed over by soot-blackened brick. The darkness shattered and broke around blades of light, the erratic sweep of lanterns nauseating in trembling hands. Bittner had drawn up a little before them, squinting the length of his extended arm. The beam of the lantern in his left hand illuminated a lumpish black shape Kewan at first mistook for a shanty draped in ragged black oilcloth. He could hear the woman whimpering, the sort of tiny mewling sounds made by someone too terrified or hurt to get a breath. He stepped forward, flanked by the bigger of the two bobbies, meaning to join Bittner in forming a wall between Garrett and the source of the sound. Then the thing stretched and rose, the draperies flaring with its movement, and Bittner saw it unveiled from within the flapping cloak, a bone-white figure as spindly as if lashed together out of broom handles, its eyes bugging out of a face like a pulsinella mask. One skeletal hand was still knotted in the hair of a woman who sprawled before him the other folded stiffly around the hilt of a hunting knife. Spring, heel, jack. The woman's dress was ripped from collar to navel. Shiny darkness spotted the edges of the gash, but the bright steel of her corset busk glinted between ragged edges of cloth, and it sharped hope in his breast. The wounds might be superficial. Throw it down, Bittner demanded, his voice ringing with authority. Throw down the knife! The thing snarled, and in a blur of black cloak and pale limbs yanked the woman's head back by her hair. The knife hand darted. Flames leaped from Bittner's revolver, and a sound so loud that Kewan felt its concussion through his chest shook the air. Kewan felt his palms sting, saw the curl of blue smoke from the barrel of his revolver, and realised that he'd fired as well. At least one bullet must have struck the thing. Kewan saw its body jerk, the shudder that rippled its cloak. The knife scythed away through darkness when its arms flung wide and struck something solid enough to thump. 
The woman screamed, her terror combining with the shrilling of police whistles that drowned the ringing in Kewan's deafened ears. Garrett appeared on Kewan's right, a slim ebony wand wavering in her hand. The devil snarled and leaped for Bittner, a jump so fearfully swift Kewan could not track it with his gun. Bittner shouted as he went down, his revolver discharging hopelessly into the air. His lantern shattered on the stones, splashing fire like water from a dashed cup. The beast fell on him, cobalt flames jetting from between its lips, its pinwheeling hands showing dark at the tips. Kewan raised his gun before he realised he could not shoot, and instead threw himself on the creature's back, his fingers burrowing deep in the folds of its cloak, seeking purchase on its scrawny throat. The cloak felt warm, oily, like filthy human skin. He clawed, his fingernails caught, bent, and what they caught on, tore. Springheel Jack shrilled, more alcohol-blue flames billowing from his mouth. The devil reared up, arching backward. Kewan yanked, slick heat flooding over his hands, burning his skin. If it was blood, it splashed his cheek and burned like fire. He held his grip. He yanked again. But the burning blood was as slick as a man's, and his hand slipped and slid. Spring-heeled Jack twisted in his grip, still wailing, and then, more eerily, cursing fluently like a man. It leaped, the living cloak flaring on every side, but Kewan's weight flattened its leap and they smashed together into the brick tenement. They crashed into a shanty roof that splintered beneath them, and Spring-heeled Jack staggered up, wobbling free of the debris, and leaped again. Kewan slid from its back and skidded along the filthy stones. When he tried to stand, thorny heat spiked the length of his shin. He yelped and fell, realising as he groped for it that he had lost his gun. One of the bobbies closed on him, truncheon dangling, and Kewan waved the man back. Across the pavement, Bittner pushed himself into a sitting position and dragged himself away from the burning pool of lantern oil. "'Where is it?' Garrett spoke out of the darkness. She must be moving toward him. Kewan found himself blinded by the beam of her lantern. Look over by the far wall. I think I got it with my wand. I can't. My leg is broken. Constable Burns? The policeman, Burns, wavered, his expression only a pale blur through the dark, but he turned away, his lantern now illuminated, a crumpled shape sprawled across the dented tin roof of a lean-to. Might be, he said. He glanced over his shoulder. DCI? She levelled her wand again and gave it a little flick, with no visible result. I reinforced the paralysis, she said. Collar it. Where's Constable Jameson? Here, ma'am. He came forward, supporting a staggering woman. The victim, Kewan realised, who was well enough to hold the ragged edges of her dress together at the front. I'll go for stretchers if you feel safe enough here with Constable Burns. Garrett smiled and slipped her wand up the tight sleeve of her jacket. We'll manage. Oh, D.I. Bittner, please do me the courtesy of sitting down until somebody can look at your injuries. I'm fine, he said, 
drawing wide his coat to display the blood-spotted tatters of his shirt, the scorched but not blistered area on his throat and cheek, the sizzled hair. He scraped me up, is all. His claws aren't all that sharp, like dog claws. I guess that explains why he used the knife. But he plunked down beside Kewan nonetheless and drew up his knees. Thank you, old man. Something rattled in Bintner's pocket as he reached inside his coat. Constable Jameson led the woman over and drew his coat off for her to sit upon. Here, miss, just sit down by the detective sergeant, would you? She as much collapsed as sat. Kewan pulled off his own coat and draped it around her shoulders. She huddled into it, wide-eyed and unweeping, peering at him over clutching fingers. Her eyes almost vanished behind her tangled locks. It's not moving, Constable Burns reported. How long will this last? Until I take it off, Garrett answered. She swayed, standing over them, but kept herself erect. Across the court, Kewan heard the sounds of people stirring, the rattle of nests of newspapers pushed back, the grind of propped-up doors slid aside as the denizens of the rookery emerged. Drag it over here, would you? And then relax. We may have a bit of a wait. Someone called, Susie! It must be the woman's name, because she flinched a little, but she didn't answer, just huddled tighter in her coat. She's here, Kewan said. A shape emerged from the night, framed by two others. Women, all of them, blousy and dressed in tatters, reeking of cheap gin. Is she alive? Kewan said, and turned his face aside as Susie was helped up and led limping away. He should retain her as a material witness, but he found he didn't care. They had the suspect in custody, though what they'd do with it he had no idea. Thank God that wasn't his department. Bittner nudged his arm. When he looked down, he saw the open mouth of a metal flask. This'll take the edge off the leg. He let Bittner slip it into his fingers and paused. There's something you should know before I drink this. Bittner waited. Kewan felt the stir of Garrett's coattail against his shoulders as she turned, scanning the darkness. He drew a breath and said, The name I was born with was Sean Kewan. Why are you telling me that? Because I want your recommendation when I apply to read sorcery at Oxford. You're Irish. That's what I'm telling you, Kewan said. You're a university man. With your letter and DCI Garrett's, they might consider me anyway. He extended the flask, untouched, back to Bittner. Bittner turned and looked him in the eye. Christ, man, I thought you were going to tell me you had the pox... Drink the damn gin. Of course you'll get your letter, man. And then maybe you can write me a report on exactly where that thing came from. Hell, Hewan answered, the sharp fumes of gin filling up his sinuses, making his eyes sting. The pain in his leg dimmed a little, veiled behind alcohol burn. I can tell you that without an education. And welcome back. Mm. Cops and sorcerers and monsters. I love it. Ms. Bear told us that these stories were in many respects inspired by Randall Garrett's Lord Darcy stories. 
I'm going to have to check some of those out now. A little bit of administrative news. M.K. Hobson, our frequent co-host here, has a new book out, The Warlock's Curse. My copy just came in the mail earlier this week, and it looks pretty dang good. It's set in the same world as the native star and the hidden goddess, not to mention her very popular story that we featured here at Podcastle, The Warlock and the Man of the Word. This one's set years later, and it's got Tesla in it. I have a pen to prove it. Head over to Hobson's website to pick up a copy for yourselves. She'll even sign it for you, or order it through your favorite online retailer. But definitely go get it, and make sure you tell her Dave and Anna sent you. Okay, feedback this week is for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Terror of Blue John Gap, read by Ian Stewart. This was the first tale we featured in October, and was the story of a man in the countryside who makes a frightening discovery as he does some cave exploration. Infinite Monkey said, I liked it. A nice old Conan Doyle monster chestnut. Knowing his other works, I was expecting a dinosaur, and instead got a mutant subterranean cave bear. I'm not sure you would have gotten the physical evidence he mentions from the animal he finally describes, but I liked it all the same. Devoted135 said, I suppose that he can't really be blamed for a skeptical reaction to local lore and subsequent curiosity to see the caves for himself. However, having gotten out safely once, how dumb was he to go back a second time? He's not Buffy, nor is he even Rick O'Connell, so he had no business trying to take care of it himself. In this respect, I ultimately prefer stories like those of Karnacki or Balfour and Merriweather. Thanks very much for those comments. Hop on over to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you think of the stories we're featuring here. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. You, our audience, our donors, allow us to keep podcasting so we can pay our authors. Because without you, we can't buy and feature the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't afford to donate, not a problem, but... Get the word out about Podcastle on the street any way you can. Thanks. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a story for dinner time, courtesy of Alberto Yanez. Until then, be mindful of those dark, gaslit alleys. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote today is from Raymond Chandler, who said, Ability is what you're capable of doing. Motivation determines what you do. Attitude determines how well you do it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>